Peace world, peace world. It's your man, Ant Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it is another episode of Keeping the Towel. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's a pleasure, it's an honor to have you in the building with me. So, ladies and gentlemen, you already know how this goes. Welcome to the sparring gym as always. And here, as you enter, you got the bag, you got the rope, you got the bike. And I need you to get on it right about now because on today... I got a sparring partner who's joined me here in the sparring gym from Texas, Mr. Antonio DeCunto. Antonio, you there, my man? Yes, I am. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, man. Thank you so much for joining me and hanging out with me, y'all. You're going to get a chance to hear this brother's life and why he keeps the towel. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how it's going to have it. You already know. And you and I, we're going to go ahead, instead of hitting the bag and hitting the ropes, we're going in the sparring ring. Good, sir. Let's go ahead and get our mouthpiece in. Let's get our gloves on. And let's get our last instruction. And let's get to the center of the ring. Let's go ahead and touch gloves because, ladies and gentlemen, it is Antonio and Ant Boogie. It has officially started. I like the name, brother. It sounds like the, the Kunto. It sounds like an angry DA from Law and Order. <laughs> Yeah, so sometimes I uh, I feel I'm out on the uh, official Italian mafia job or something like that. But. <laughs> I like that. So, man, let's go ahead and let's start it up, man. Put everybody on. Let them know where it all started for you. Um. Well, I never knew my, knew my dad. He was gone before I was born. At 10 years old, my mom's boyfriend at the time uh, called our house and my grandmother picked up the phone and when she answered uh, the boyfriend was on the other end of the phone and told my grandmother to tell my mom to welcome to the world of AIDS so um, he knew he had the disease and he knew he passed it to my mother I guess he wanted her to know that uh, she was now ushered in a distance especially around that time and there was nothing it was brand new so um you know there was no medic medication or solution for it at all so 12 years old my mom passed away uh the boyfriend that gave it to her was actually uh the reason that she ended up passing away because they had a secret meeting scheduled that they were going to talk things out and try to um, have a relationship with each other. And it ended up going bad and uh, he kicked her out of the car and she walked like an hour and a half, two hours in the rain, caught pneumonia and then passed away. That was a weird thing to go through as far as like seeing the rifts that how it affected the family and what people were doing, like not wanting to eat off the same place or utensils as her because they were afraid they, they were going to catch it. But that was a lot to deal with at uh, 12, 12 years old. So when she passed, my grandmother took care of me. And uh, so at this point, I'd been raised by nothing but women, no real male influences. So my grandmother took care of me, and then uh, she ended up dying of cancer when I was 14. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it, it was a weird childhood full of, um, full of early death. Basically I was dealing with, uh, the issues of impermanence at a very, very early age. My uncle, he was the only responsible person in the family. And this is your mom's brother. 
Um, Michael took care of me. Uh, he was the only responsible person in the family at that point. I don't know. He was head of narcotics division in the Pinellas County Sheriff's office in Florida. And he was head of SWAT team and, uh, he was kind of a big deal. They did like various training and all that. Um, but I always felt like I was just a kind of a burdensome roommate to him. You know, he was, um, he was, he, he wasn't really ready to have a, a young dude around. And so I had a lot of rebellious tendencies, uh, towards him in general, just because, you know, being a cop, he wanted to control every aspect of what I was doing. And I didn't, I felt at that time in my life, I didn't really need to have the boot come down on me as it were. I needed someone to actually, you know, care and talk me through this and coach me through what was going on because I was young, but that wasn't coming from him. He offered pretty much nothing but control. Like this has to be this way. This has to be this way. Um, you got to finish school. And when you get done with school, you should do enforcement or military or something like this. And it's like, if you don't choose that route, then you need to get into college and choose a, you know, good profession. And he was just trying to dictate my whole life's plan. At the time, I, I was still confused as far as what was life all about. I mean, I just lost two people in my family, very close to me. He didn't spend any time on that. It was just, this is what you have to do for living life. Um, and basically he was just trying to groom me for when I was 18 and he just wanted me out, I think. So yeah, it became a, became a thing for him, you know, controlling every aspect of what I was doing. So then it became a thing for me to like, try to get one over on him all the time. And, um, I'd go through like different levels of when I started smoking weed, I would go through different levels of coming home really high or not, not so high to see if he could tell, which I assume he could, or maybe he just didn't care. Like when I passed by him and just, you know, conversated for a few seconds, maybe he just didn't actually care. So he never said anything about it. So I assume he just had no care about the whole situation. Basically the whole time living with him, I just never felt just never felt the love. I don't think that was his thing. Looking at it now, studying some psychology, and I think he had, you know, narcissism to the extreme. You know, he just wasn't able to connect with the human being on a deeper level. And that definitely, I saw a lot of that with his female relationships. Um, there was no, you know, caring or love with any of his female partners. It was just having fun for, you know, a week or so, and then on to the next girl. Um, <clears throat> Do you think that was due to his profession as a SWAT leader? Well, I think that was definitely due to uh, profession. Yeah, he'd been he'd been doing it for a while. He pretty much got into got into that as soon as he got out of school. Um, and I think just being around that type of environment all the time kind of made him not really able to relate to regular human interaction anymore. Everybody was trying to pull something on him and um, he was always going to win that type of interactment. So take me back a little with your mom. You said something interesting there that while growing up, you were able to see people, whether it be family, friends, whoever, and you would see them basically um, step away from her 
or they didn't want to eat from the same plate and all that stuff. Because again, yes, you were right. During that time, AIDS was just something barely was just brand new to everybody. And we heard about a lot of erroneous stigmas. You witnessing that people stepping away, not wanting to drink around her and all that stuff because, oh, I don't want to catch it just by being around her. What did that do to you as a child that you witnessed? Well, it confused me, um, especially spending, you know, the whole two years or so with her during this time. And, you know, I was never shy to give her hugs or kisses or anything. It didn't even register on my thing that other people should be afraid of this because I wasn't and it wasn't having any effect on me. You know, it was my mom, so I didn't. I didn't really care what other people said. They weren't uh, living around or anything like that. So it definitely got that early seed planted in my mind just to not really be concerned about other people's stuff, basically. Or other people say it, it comes from a perspective of not actually living around it, typically. Did you have family who said, oh, don't do that. Don't don't hug her. Don't, don't be too much up under her. Did you ever have family family members tell you that? Um, the only incident I had was actually when hospital, my mom had passed and we uh, rushed up to the hospital and I was the only family member that actually kissed her on her deathbed. Wow. She had already passed away, but I gave, I went in to give her a kiss and I remember feeling that pull, like someone pulling me away and they didn't want me to do it. And I you know, just fought against it and I accomplished it. So yeah, that was that, that, that was a weird moment that definitely stuck in my mind over the years as far as you know being the only one to actually be willing to kiss my mother on her deathbed. Now let's let's take it from with your uncle. Your uncle just said he gave you ultimatums. Go to school, join the force, not get out. So which route did you take and why? Well, I pretty much went um, a route of appearing that I was giving him what he wanted, but secretly not doing anything he wanted at all. So yeah, I started talks with like a Marine recruiter and went through the process of, you know, doing a pre ASVAB test and all this stuff and acting like I wanted to get more in shape, you know, running around all the time and all this. I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm getting military fit. <laughs> and, um, well, like I wasn't, a dumb kid, uh, which is interesting because like most of my classes I could get A's and B's, no problem. But the fact that my uncle wanted me to do good in school and he would reward me for doing good in school, I would intentionally only do good in a couple classes and then kind of like take naps during the other classes. So in those classes, I would get like D's or whatever because uh, I wasn't doing anything. And then I would like sneak down to a snape staples with the report card very finely cut out the a's and b's uh re repost them on the credit card and then make a new copy and give that doctored report card to my uncle that, that was actually one of the things that when i was 30 i think i uh told him i said you know it's one thing that i did get you on and he's like, hey, what's that? And I told him about the report card stuff. I was like, yeah, I wasn't doing good in school, but you, uh, but I got you to buy me video games anyways. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, 
he just he looked at me his face turned a little red and he just kind of gritted through his teeth he's like well you got me on that one okay um so he wasn't pleased but that's the one thing that i always like that was my one victory the whole time living with him yeah i've actually tried the military thing on my own a few times and uh just never never panned out i always had that sinking feeling that that shouldn't be my path so i was never really into that idea even though i've always been like very military minded as far as like embrace the suck and um those type of mentalities so yeah i pretty much went the opposite direction well i don't know the opposite but I wanted a different direction than what he was planning and uh, started doing a lot of sales jobs and, you know, ended up being like a manager at a cell phone store at one point. But even then, that, that wasn't like where, where I could see myself going in the future. It was just, you know, wanting to do my own thing away from his influence. So where did you actually see yourself? Oh, I had I had no idea. Up to up to the point I moved out of his place. Um that was actually leading to like my first real addiction, I guess you could say, um, was strip clubs. You know, I had a friend at school and he, he showed me the strip club scene when I was, uh, when I turned 18 and I didn't think there was anything better than that. Seeing, uh, like women all over the place and getting dances from them. So I became hooked on that. And that was actually where my first time would be was with one of the dancers. But yeah, that was, that was, that was a pretty extreme addiction because like I was pretty much putting all my money into it. And eventually I would just maybe not show up to work. Cause I, you know, got home at four in the morning and it started affecting job. And then the job, you know, not having work affects the rent. And then you kind of see everything snowballing and that eventually led into my, you know, heavy drug use and then a suicide attempt. So by the time I was right before my 20th birthday, yeah, I was uh, engaging in a suicide attempt through ecstasy. And that was my weapon of choice was usually ecstasy or LSD at that time. So for you to go ahead and try this suicide attempt with X, did you tried it down a set of pills in one shot or was it spaced out? How did, how did that come to be? Well, so I bought 10 pills of ecstasy and then I used the rest of my money to buy lottery tickets closer to the night it was happening. I made the decision, um, that I'd only take, you know, five pills, have a good time before my last night and then, uh, take the other five when I felt that. I had partied enough and enjoyed myself enough. So wait, 10X pills, glow sticks, EDM going off in the background, and you have 100 lotto tickets and hit none. Yeah. Happy um, birthday, dude. Yeah, so that was like a Wednesday or Thursday, I think, the drawing was. And I remember looking up to heaven. I said, okay, God, you've made your decision. This is on you now. You know, because I was like, if I don't win the lotto, then I have to do, you know, the suicide because I had no other options. Came through, I blamed God for what was about to happen. And then a couple of nights later, I started the process, um, down five pills. I was having a good old time. And then I was getting a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of weird hallucinations, which usually don't happen with, uh, ecstasy. It's more of an LSD thing. Uh, the first one was never been a real like heavy TV user. Um, there was a TV in the room. I always had it unplugged. The first thing that happened while I was 
doing this, um, Regis Philman from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came on the television and he just kept repeating, is that your final answer? Is this your final answer? Is this your final answer? I looked at the TV and it wasn't like a, a real image. It was kind of like a, a shadow prediction. And I looked at the outlet to make sure the TV was unplugged like it usually is. So that was my first freak out moment to see that the TV was unplugged, but there was still this thing asking if this was my final answer. Mm. And this was actually so, it. You weren't, you weren't hallucinating. Yeah. I'd already taken the five pills and this was the first spiritual incident. If you want to call it that the second big, big incident, um, you know, heavy metal songs started playing. It was called uh, last resort and it was done by Papa Roach and the song is about suicide. I thought maybe, you know, my foot had bumped the dial while dancing around or something like that. So I tried changing the station. Everything but that song uh, was coming through was static. My thought was, okay, this is another weird incident in relation to what I'm actually doing right now. And I have to listen to the song and uh, deal with the whole thought process. So the song went off and then uh, the EDM music came back on. And, you know, this is when I started thinking is like, well, these signs are fine and all, but this is pretty much what I have to do. You know, I have to go through it. I have to go through with this. Why did you feel you have to go through it? You had to go through it. I just didn't see any other options, you know, coming out of it. What would my options be? Broke you know, rinse right around the corner. You know, this was the end of June. I felt like this this moment had to be either it was the lottery ticket victory or um, I had to go out this way. The third big incident, the glow sticks became kind of like a film projector. The glow sticks became what? Became like a, well, not a film projector, but a film strip. And then a projector moved from one side of my face to the other and started showing me my life flashed before my eyes. Uh, on this film strip in between a pair of glow sticks. And it was uh, showing like past, present, future. Then it like rolled up into a scroll, became a glow stick in my hand. I threw them both down and said, okay, I made a horrible decision. I went to the toilet and tried to puke everything up. Of course, that didn't work. It'd been a while. And when I came out of the bathroom, then the living room kind of exploded into there were a bunch of demon faces coming out the wall. There was a demon sitting on a, a throne looking at me with a big smile on his face, following me around the room with his eyes. And I threw on the lights and decided that I had to turn myself into the police. So ran out of the house, got in the car. I think I was, I think I was on the road for somewhere between five to seven miles before coming across a cop at a hotel. And the whole time I was like intentionally swerving in, in between lanes and honking my horn and flashing my high beams to try to get attention. Pulled up next to this cop, finally, that was pulling out of a hotel and leaned out the window. I said, hey, uh, I've been doing a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing tonight. And immediately he took the defensive, which I probably didn't word that question, you know, that statement very well. Um, he might have thought I'd just murdered a bunch of people. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, he became defensive. He's like, oh, yeah, what's that? And uh, so he got it. I told, tried to tell him my story. He didn't want to deal with it. He got a supervisor out there. The whole time the supervisor was talking to me, you know, his face is melting off of him. And I'm, I have so much inner anxiety and panic going on seeing all this. Like, did I make the right decision? Am I still 
you know, messing around and making the wrong choice here. And I'm like, no, I gotta, you know, I gotta do this. So he pretty much gave me, gave me two options. Uh, said, uh, he could put me, <clears throat> he could arrest me, put me in a cell, let me, you know, detox and then be on my way, but we go on my record or I could do a voluntary Baker act. And what's the Baker act? I forget exactly what goes into it, but it's a, like, if you, if you're doing drugs and you voluntarily uh, turn yourself in because maybe you've taken too much, maybe you feel that you're going to be a danger to yourself or someone else, you can turn yourself in under this Baker Act and not get charged uh, with a criminal offense, not have anything go on your record, but you have to get checked out with a psychological establishment. So that's what was happening here. So, you know, this was... Uh, uh, about two, two or three in the morning. So I had to wait a little while for the uh, place to open up. So I was sitting in a waiting room for a few hours. By the time I got to that place, you know, my thoughts had cleared and a hundred percent, I knew that I didn't want to take my life in any fashion. I was kind of thinking that God literally, literally put the fear of God in me. Yeah, I went to the uh, psychological place and had an interview with a lady there and she looked at me and she's like, just through a few minutes of conversation, I don't really know why you're here. It's like, I don't, I don't get any sense that you want to hurt yourself or hurt anybody else. And is that pretty much a done, done idea for you? And I said, yes, ma'am. And uh, she's like, so you have no intention of, you know, committing suicide. And I said, no, that's a hundred percent left my frame of mind. I didn't know the practices at the time, but I found out later that it's not a usual practice for them to release somebody suicidal on the same day, but that's what she did. After just a few hours evaluation and time spent with me in conversation, she uh, ended up releasing me that same day. So I had to bite the bullet and ask my uncle for help. That was pretty much the only option at that point. Turns out he had some inheritance money that I didn't know about. He said, okay, it's basically going to be your money, but you know, we can use it, some of it to get your car out of the impound. You can pay rent for you know the month of July. You know, I'm not going to do this again unless you show me that you basically have your head out of your ass and that you're making an improvement in a positive direction, which I did. Um, that led me to find a church and get baptized. You know, I did a very heartfelt, you know, coming to Jesus prayer and all that. Um, I didn't do that in front of everybody else like a lot of people do, but I did that on my own time. Okay. Um, yeah, that that led into, I guess you would say the church phase of my life. That last about two years. So you was involved in ministry. And what was that experience like coming from mom passing of AIDS, granny passing with a draconian type of relative and your uncle and experimenting with drugs, looking to go ahead and suicide. And now you find yourself in a church. This is a whole different phase now. I thought given, given my story and what it meant to me and what it could potentially mean to other youths um, going through maybe similar situations, similar thoughts, I thought that would be uh, pretty impactful, but I don't know. I could I could use the word stonewalled a little bit, which was confusing. Um, that that church in particular didn't feel that my story was uh, appropriate 
for anybody in the you know college youth group, which is the exact age range that I should be you know talking to others about things like this. So that was confusing to me. And you know there were a few other incidents where I kind of started losing my taste for that particular church. And I haven't actually been to another one, so maybe that's just unique to that one in particular. But I was definitely kind of jaded from my experience over there to um, the church environment and ended up going into thinking that, you know, if I have those beliefs and I'm strong in those beliefs, then why, why do I need to look to an outside source to tell me anything about my faith? basically so here it is that you're with this group and you decide and you want to tell them your story your testimony basically and they say this is not for this group of kids they don't want they don't want this group of kids to hear it now you being in that community did you know of kids who were experimenting with um lsd x all sorts of narcotics did you know that i didn't know that of the of that particular group um they had a a school attached to them so it was like a private school and then you know a big big church attached to the same area and just from uh, uh i'd gone to private school for a little while and just from my own experience uh most of the kids in private school had the most you know controlling parents when you try to control kids usually goes the opposite direction and you would know so, about that so i was assuming that i wasn't alone in my you know childhood antics and i assume that other kids were probably you know giving the impression that they were you know the good christian college student but they were actually messing around with stuff you know drinking or smoking at least um, i never really got the impression that maybe you know, maybe a couple people there uh, were involved with, you know, the other drugs, but um, I always got the impression that at least drinking and smoking were part of it. The final straw for that church in particular, we were at a meeting and the pastor was ending the session and it's like, well, thanks everybody for coming. We're going to uh, close out in a prayer. <clears throat> and then the beginning of the prayer, he said, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are playing a game today and we we don't wish any injury on either team but we really really pray for a Tampa Bay Buccaneer victory today and <laughs> you know I'm I'm listening to that and my eyes open I said you know this isn't the place I need to be mm. uh you're you're praying for this or pretty much admitting that you think it's all just going through the motions and having fun under you know this flag of saying that you're a baptist christian church yeah that was uh that was it for me so then now you decide after the prayer for the tampa bay buccaneers then folks if you don't remember about the tampa bay buccaneers then they were not all that good of a team until they won their super bowls so yeah but um now that they now that you were able to catch all that decides to lead the church what goes through your head at that moment? Because now you don't have a spiritual covering, per se. Yeah, I kind of guess you'd say I feel that with, you know, I was getting into a lot of uh, philosophy books at the time. And 
uh, one of the philosophers I really took an interest in was um, Frederick Nietzsche. He he had he was a pretty big opponent of the church and well organized church in general, saying that you go into church and then you know the man would come out as a an abortion of what he was organized mindset of getting you into like just going through the motions and ceremony and having it not actually mean anything to you he's you know said that's the uh that's the big problem if you are a spiritual person and you believe that God is the reason that you're here and God is the reason for the good things that come in your life. When you need some organized religion telling you that, I guess. Um, So I got into that quite a bit. I kind of lost track of that experience, I guess. And, um, you know, I forgot all about the intervention, you could say, about, you know, God kind of saving me at that time. And, you know, I started getting a big ego about things and uh, figuring that, I was, you know, I, I was it and I was the reason for my successes and that also meant I was a reason for my failures and everything was on me and I don't need anybody, I don't need anything, don't need God, don't need people. You know, eventually led me into a road of, I wouldn't say like despair again, but just kind of like, I don't know, just not just not caring about anything. Yeah, you know, I dealt with alcoholism for about seven years. I was given the opportunity to try a psychedelic substance again. Was that a fight when that was brought to you? Like, hey, try this. Did you fight that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the guy I worked with you know, gave me a little stamp or blotter, it's was called, and uh, said, man, this is really, really, really good. I want you to have it. And kept it and uh, I acted like I you know took it in front of him and then I kind of slipped in my pocket yeah it was a it, it was kind of a weird thing but I didn't spend much time thinking about it and I remember actually I was in I was urinating and I pulled this out of my pocket I said you know what I'm gonna give it a shot and um, my my thinking at the time was that I wasn't ready for some of the truths that it can make you deal with. And my mentality was, okay, I'm, I'm older, more mature-minded, so maybe I can actually uh, deal with the truths that I see. As soon as I started feeling effects, I uh, I went off to my room and I didn't want to be around anybody, which was actually kind of a new thing also. Usually I'd want to use it around other people. Um, but yeah, I went back to my room, closed my eyes, and you know, I kind of heard like a booming voice that says, everything's okay now. And um, you know, I came out of that and I wasn't, I had that, like it, it invigorated my belief in God. It gave me no, like I no longer even thought about, you know, death or anything like that. And I remember the next day I felt just as, as calm as I ever felt and said, okay, maybe I've been you know, my earlier years, I'd used that for the wrong reasons. Had some further sessions in that. I think it was my third session where it completely cured me of alcoholism right there. You know, I came out of the third experience and I looked at a, 
half a bottle of whiskey in my room and I just I said I'm done with you you were experimenting with what exactly uh, this was LSD LSD okay said that used it and it just reassured your faith in God now Antonio wouldn't that be looked at as a contradiction or a, con or a serious contrast that using a psychedelic and faith that seems to clash so what's your take on that well yeah, there's certainly an idea. You know, you think, um, you know, God isn't about that. And maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, if you want to get into God and Satan, maybe it's just Satan's tool. And, and uh, you know, he's he's kind of smiling and laughing at the fact that you're using it and maybe getting some benefits out of it, but you're actually, you know, using something for darkness instead of light. But, um i also think that there's a lot of moments that i've had specifically where it feels almost as um almost a a moment of god saying like okay this instrument is of of satan used for evil but not today you know i'm going to use it to hit antonio and uh in a very you know enlightening way and you know use it for good instead of bad if those who have done that had the same mindset whether they've used it through um psychedelics they used it through weed and they od on it on the psychedelic they od on it it causes them to pass away would you say that that they were doing god's work or would you say hey you used this instrument which you said used for evil and you used it to kill yourself what's your take on that well, i'm definitely not you know saying that um psychedelic use is the way that everybody needs to go uh, I'm definitely of a, a very different mentality, a different mind about things. And going through what I've gone through on psychedelic journeys or, you know, just through regular life itself, I would say I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. And I'm just saying that I've gotten certain benefits from it. Other people I, I know that have used it get no benefits from it. They just want to have a good time and and you know that confuses me from my frame of mind currently because i see it being used as you know great therapy tool for myself and but i also realize that okay maybe that person is incapable of you know getting that result from it you know i wouldn't participate at all in you know pushing them to uh continue or anything like that so is there any such thing as responsible use well i mean for myself i think i i do that um you know i never mix it with the party scene you know i i i think it's a very um for for myself it's a very self-improvement type of thing you know if i have some issues i want to work on um i'll think about doing it but I've also come to a point now where I kind of think it's like I can comfortably, you know, hang up the phone. The ideas of psychedelics in general, it certainly seems like a lot of things are kind of veering me towards that path as far as um, they've gotten me some improvements. They've changed my way of thinking. And I think once you go down that enlightened path and you see the world in this way of, you know, from expanded consciousness i don't think you can go back to the other ways of thinking anyway maybe maybe it's time that i can you know say that i don't really need it anymore and that's the cool thing about them too i think that they're not really habit forming in general unless you kind of equate it with that sense of you know i 
I want to do this with my friends and you start to, you know, do a psychedelic like you would drinking alcohol or something like that and turning it into a party experience instead of a uh, deep spiritual experience. So you're saying it now you don't really see the use for it as, as you do now. What will you tell someone who is in the faith community, no matter the faith they're in, and they they may think that's good for them or best for them. What will you tell them? You have to hear the whole the whole story um, from their past. What's leading them to even you know consider doing this? I have a podcast of my own. Um, you know, in that I basically detail you know my life where where. You know, I went along the psychedelic channels and what it did for me. I also tried to weave in a lot of like, you know, self-help and various uh, psychology and different philosophies and things like that. Like the psychedelic path worked great for me, but it's not a one size fits all. You know, I couldn't just, you know, recommend somebody says, oh, I've been dealing with alcoholism for 20 years of my life. You know, I'm not just going to say, oh, you take LSD, everything's going to be better. <laughs> you know, that's not the case. Right. You, you have to, first of all, you know, it takes that like wantingness to not be an alcoholic anymore. And I was definitely at that mindset where I was just tired of drinking all the time. Because the only time I wasn't drinking was when I was sleeping. You know, for me, I had, you know, I was in that mindset of wanting to quit. And LSD kind of gave me that uh, big push. Where it was just done. That was it. Boy was drinking an LSD. Your crutch also. You got that out the way. So what now do you use, Antonio, to coping to get you through tough moments? Actually, music. Uh, for some reason, after coming back from Peru, I started um, looking at things on YouTube as far as music that were kind of new to me. And I came across a video of someone playing called a handpan. I'd never heard it before and i was entranced by it i looked into it unfortunately the entry level price for a good one is about six to eight hundred bucks i said well this is a pretty expensive experiment yeah i listened to a couple more videos and i said no i'm i'm going for it i gotta have one all my anxiety and reservations were were put to rest i've been playing for actually a year and five months today yeah you know i'm already thinking about doing like a my first open mic I've designed my own t-shirt uh, for the handpan community and got a lot of music videos on uh, YouTube right now, just kind of documenting like from the very beginning when I couldn't put anything together pretty much and it probably sounded horrible. Sorry to anybody who's, who's listened to that, but um, you know, up to, up to now where it's, you know, I have more, more of a flow and you can you know see the progress and um, I'm getting more, where you know i want to be visible because the early videos like you can you know i never videotaped myself as far as my face uh because it was just enough to know that the camera was on and i would have that stage fright just in front of a camera so but now i'm showing more of my face so i'm feeling more comfortable doing it so um yeah mu music is my outlet now antonio why do you keep your towel you got to keep those uh memories of what got you where you are you know, what, what a lot of us consider hard times are actually some of the best, most character building things we, we can go through. Um, you know, some people, I mean, 
there's a lot of people out there that I don't know, can't even begin to comprehend the struggles they went through. I was thought I was unique and I was experiencing the, uh, the harshest thing I could at that time. You know, there's a lot of things I hear now, people going through a lot worse. It's one of the things like, I hope through my podcast and I've gotten a couple uh, messages here and there uh, throughout the time of doing it that, you know, it means a lot to hear that someone else is going, you know, has gone through the same thing or is going through similar ideas and ways of thinking. And that means a lot to me and kind of, you know, allows me to think of new things and not to leave anything out because, you know, nothing's trivial to a certain point when you're trying to get things out there and help people. Yep. So, world, there you have it. Antonio, you got any last words or and your social media where people can reach you? My man, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Yeah, so I have an Instagram if you want to look me up there. It's uh, Finding the God Spark. Same for the podcast. You can find it on Spotify and Apple and um, all the other main outlets. Um, so, Finding the God Spark. And then if you are interested in uh, the hand pan music and seeing what I'm doing over there, uh, you can look me up on YouTube. Well, folks, I'm going to put all that in the description box where you'll be able to go ahead and catch up with him and check him out. And definitely you want to check out the Godspark podcast. I got a chance to listen to a couple of your episodes, man. It's pretty dope. Not bad at all. I will say this to you. You got to sit someplace quiet to listen to it because it's definitely intrinsic. It, it has that very melodic, cool, calm vibe to it. So, yeah, definitely you want to check him out. Antonio, thank you. And you have officially survived Boogie's Gym. And, ladies and gentlemen, this sparring session is now officially over. Yo, world, like I always tell you, wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears, but whatever you do, don't throw in your towel. This is your man, Aunt Boogie. We are out of here. Peace.